Proverbs 4, verse 1. He says, Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, Let your heart retain my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget, nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Now you're going to see something different happen in uh, verse 6. There's a personification uh, that takes place. Do not forsake her, and she will preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And then all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she will promote, promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. She will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory she will deliver to you. Hear, my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in the right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered, and when you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. So you see a father speaking to a son regarding wisdom, but you also see, he says, when I was a little, a little a lad and my father spoke to me these things, I've been there. And what you have here is generational wisdom. And that's one thing that we can really learn from the scripture as parents to teach our kids, to instruct them. And not only to instruct them, but to instruct them so they can instruct their children. It only takes one generation for things to go bad. We see that all over the scripture. We see that in our country. One generation. Parents can be great. There could be a great revival. And the next generation is going back to apostasy. We also see that wisdom is personified. Uh, it goes from a quality to a personification, making it relational in a sense. So there's a more of an understanding with wisdom. Facilitating seeing the sum of what she can provide for you. Now, some scholars believe that in this, it sets the stage, this personification for Jesus Christ to come as the word of God. For the word of God, which you look at it and it's the word I keep in my heart, but it's inanimate. When Jesus came, he was the whole embodiment of the word of God. He made the word of God relational. So you saw that stage being set. All right. Uh, we know that there is a non-negotiable aspect of parenthood, and it is instructing and teaching. And you may say, well, I don't have a college degree. I don't know how to teach. Just your relationship with your children, setting a good example, even reading the Bible together. That's all you need. You don't need a college degree for that. Okay, let's fast forward all the way to the last book in the Bible, Revelation 7. Um, let me start, actually, uh, we didn't finish Revelation 6, uh, starting with verse 12, and then we'll go through 7. But we saw the last time the first five seals were opened, and today we're going to see the sixth seal opened up, then a pause prior to the seventh seal where God does a different kind of sealing. You see two different sealings going on here. Chapter 6, verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. So the sixth seal, you see things starting to get ramped up now. We see some cataclysmic events. 
really all throughout the Old Testament, but you, uh, mainly in Joel 2.30 through 32, Joel 3.15, almost word for word out of here. And many of the minor prophets, where Pastor Anthony taught on the minor prophets, uh, you see a lot of these cataclysmic events and a picture of the day of the Lord. And also going to the New Testament, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus sits down with his disciples and speaks about future events, you see some of these events. Now, there was good historical accounts of the aftermath of the United States bombing Japan after world, in World War II. And a lot of first-hand accounts, people that survived it, described earthquakes, a feeling of the earth moving. They described um, uh, you know, particulate matter in the air, changing the, the appearance of the sun and the moon. They described uh, all these bizarre type of anomalies in the uh, post-destruction of Japan. Now, I don't believe at all for a minute that this is speaking about World War II. However, if we take this on a bigger picture, it is a possibility that what's being described here is the aftermath of a nuclear holocaust, where nations start lobbing nuclear missiles at each other and the earth is being shaken and there's so much junk in the air that it changes the composition of what you see in the day or the night sky. Or we can just say that we can take God's word at face value. Now, often we, we look at Revelation and we say, well, it could mean this and it could mean that and it could mean this. If it's a pool of good conjectures, I'll, I'll put it in there. If I feel strongly about it, I'll, I'll let you know that. But you know what? Sometimes God's word is just what it is. He's shaking the heavens and the earth. You know, he's moving things around. Um, he, has, he has the liberty to do that. In verse 13, the word for stars in the Greek is asteris, where we get the word asteroid from. Could be, and, and it is more of a, a larger pool of meaning. You can look at it as a meteor, a star, or some type of celestial debris. And we see that there's some type of meteor shower that's bombarding the earth. Now, what's possible is that some large chunks of space debris, they come, they enter the earth's atmosphere. Most of the times, this happens all the time. But if it's small enough, it burns up from the friction, and by the time it comes into our atmosphere, there's really nothing left. However, there are instances in recorded history of some of them large enough making it through our atmosphere and then pounding the earth. Um, it is possible that they would, it, it could cause major bombardment, according to this scripture, and it could cause a polar axis shift. We know that the Earth has a north pole to south pole, basically a 23-degree axis. It's not perfectly pole to pole, okay? There's a, there's a little bit of an axis. And a polar axis shift, if it gets hit hard enough, it could kind of wobble. Now, what's interesting about that, I'm going to use a little science because it is fun. A lot of Christian scientists get together and they play with some of these things. But Haggai 2.6 says, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth. God says that through his prophet. I will shake the heavens and the earth. Some believe that, if you look at creation, um, that the whole thing with the flood, the water's coming up from the recesses of, of the deep, and also the Bible speaks about a time where there was, a, in a sense, a canopy of water that covered the earth, covered like the, the globe. Uh, and that would account for the dinosaurs, it would account for a tropical environment all throughout the earth, uniform warming, and it's all scientific atmospheric jargon. But according to the scripture, that, that canopy in the atmosphere kind of came down, and that's why there was so much water on the earth. Some speculate that the continents might have even been bigger pre-flood. And some believe that there was a polar axis shift. Now, follow me here. 
we found, scientists have found, frozen woolly mammoths in, I guess, the, the North Pole area with vegetation still in their stomach. Normally, what happens is you eat something, and if you die, you rot, the thing in your stomach rots, okay? But this vegetation was purely preserved. And the belief is that this woolly mammoth was flash frozen. Now, the only thing that could account for that is the environment was changed like that. Polar axis shift changes the climate, changes the environment, and that woolly mammoth is flash frozen with that vegetation still in his stomach. A lot of really fun things to play with. God's word is very scientific if you look at it. Verse 14. Again, you, you see all these things happening. The sky recedes as a scroll. Um, not only this judgment on mankind, but also on the curses on creation. And we see that in Romans 8. From the fall, it's running its course. It's at its apex right now. It's a possibility that there's the three laws of thermodynamics and physics. The second law of thermodynamics, if you're familiar with that, it's called positive entropy. And what it basically says that in a closed system, everything in, in, in creation in the universe basically goes from order to disorder. And you could see that. Things rust. Houses will fall apart if you don't add energy into that system to keep the house in, in good repair. Our bodies are winding down as we get older. We have more problems. So positive entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, basically says that everything is winding down from a state of order to disorder. Very possible that this is just being accelerated here. It's hard to comprehend what, what's going on here because if you think about it, nobody's ever witnessed this. You got the Apostle John seeing this happen before him, and he's like, you know, I don't know if they gave him a pen and a paper or he just memorized it. I don't know how it happened, but the disciple John is doing the best he can to relay this information to us, right, to fellow Christians. And we're doing the best we can to try to understand what he's seeing. Something is lost in the translation. So I believe when this happens, we're going to be like, whoa, that's how it happened. Whoa, that's really cool. God, that's amazing. So it, it, you use your imagination today, but understand when we really get to see these events, it's going to be really mind-blowing. Verse 15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So here is man's, what I consider, irrational reaction to these cataclysmic events. Number one, they're hiding. Number two, they're speaking to inanimate objects. They're talking to the caves, they're talking to the mounds, they're talking to the rocks. Very irrational behavior here. Certainly it's a stressful time, but I believe that repentance would have been a better choice. There was another couple, so to speak, that kind of made the same choice when they sinned. It's Adam and Eve, right? They could have done, done the, the, the wrong thing. They could have, you know, they sinned. They could have got together, especially Adam, hopefully being the, the leader of the house. He should have said, we, we really, babe, we really made a mess here. We need to go before the Lord, get down on our hands and knees and ask for his, his forgiveness. We could, they could have done that. But what did they do? They hid. They covered their private parts. They hid. Like, how are you going to hide from God? Does that make any sense? See, when we sin, it distorts our thinking. Sin distorts rationality. And you see that here. I've seen a lot of people, when confronted with sin, expend more energy avoiding the problem because they're too prideful and they don't want to humble themselves and fix it and do the right thing. 
There was a character in uh, years ago. Remember Happy Days? How many people saw Happy Days? Right? There was a character, the Fonz. In those days, he was cool. And he was so cool. He had a motorcycle, and he was so perfect, and he looked perfect, and he was flawless. And there was a few instances where he would say, if he did something and he was wrong, he had a hard time saying, I was wrong. Remember, he would go, I was rude, rude, rude. And they'd have to finish it. It's okay, Fonz, you were wrong. He couldn't say it. He was a very prideful character. But correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know any instance in the scripture where someone has sinned and they've gone before the Lord and they asked for his repentance and it was a heartfelt repentance and God said, eh, I'm not interested. Go away. Your chances are up. I don't see that anywhere in scripture. So I believe that they could have done that, but they didn't. And that's a message of hope, really, because it doesn't matter what you did in your life. You could come here and this could be the first time you're being introduced to the scripture and you're interested a little bit, but say, you know what, all these church people, they look kind of holy. Maybe this isn't the place for me. Maybe you have skeletons in your, clo- in your closet. Who doesn't have skeletons in your closet? If we look back far enough, we've all done something that probably we're ashamed of. And if we haven't done anything physically, like the rich young ruler, in our hearts we've sinned against God. So we're all, it's an equal playing field. But the message is that even, I believe, that those who hid, those who cried for death and for the mountains to fall on them, I believe if they truly repented and had a change of heart, God would have forgiven them. He would have cleansed them of their sin and they could have gone and had that restored fellowship with him. That's my belief. And I think it's definitely scripturally backed. So it is, your, again, again, a good message today. Verse 16 and 17, we see the, the wrath of the lamb kind of seems like an oxymoron. You know, a lamb is a gentle, mild creature. You know, this is the wrath of the lamb that's coming here, as opposed to the Jesus that we know, the meek and mild savior. Because the time will come that, where Jesus will take on the characteristics now of a lion and execute wrath on an unrepentant world. My advice, though, is to call on Jesus now while he is the meek and mild savior. That's definitely good advice. And a few more scriptures here that I'd just like to use to bolster our pre-trib understanding of the rapture. Uh, Revelation 3.10, Jesus says that we will be kept from this hour of trial or wrath that will come upon the whole earth. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, the Apostle Paul says that God did not appoint us, believers, to wrath. So, if there's wrath being perpetrated by Jesus Christ on this world, guess what? The church isn't here because we're not appointed to wrath. Now, some may say to me, and it's a good question, but what about Christians who are persecuted today? It's a good question. Well, aren't they, being, aren't they the recipients of wrath? Well, I would say this. Who is the author of that wrath? We know that right now the world belongs to Satan. We see all the disgusting things that we read in the news. We see what people do to each other. You look at some of these other countries, and there's things I can't even mention from the pulpit because it's so brutal and egregious what human beings do to each other. But especially even Christians who are being persecuted, the author is not God right now, it's Satan. When God is ready and the day of the Lord happens, he will execute his wrath on a wicked world and he'll pull his people out before that time happens. The great day of his wrath, or really the day of the Lord spoken many times in the Old Testament, is a period, a time period encompassing the judgments and ending with Christ's return. And the question is asked, who is able to stand? The answer is only those in Christ. Chapter 7, verse 1 through 8. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or, any, or on any tree. 
Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. So the Jews here, or these is Israelis, escape judgment and they're sealed in this tribulation period. Now, there's a lot of speculation, there's a lot of question. Who are the 144,000? The Jehovah Witnesses may come to your door, knock on your door and come and, and talk to you, and they'll talk about the 144,000, although their 144,000 doesn't seem to line up with scriptures. The Jehovah Witnesses believe that the 144,000 are 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses that are sealed. And they get to go to heaven, and there's no room for the 144,000 first person. And from that point on, everybody goes, gets to hang out on earth. So if I'm the 144,000 first Jehovah Witness, I'm going to be pulling my hair for early, all eternity saying, I missed it by one person. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of, you know, God's going to the permit office and saying, I really need to build a big, big heaven, and I need a variance. And the zoning officer says, listen, Mr. God, it, it's, um, it's zoned residential, so you can only have 144,000 in your heaven. It's, it's, it's facetious. When we try to put God in a box and tell God that his heaven is only big enough for a certain amount of people, we miss the big picture and the vastness of God. As a matter of fact, we saw previously in the book of Revelation that he had a host of 10,000 times 10,000, which is 100 million. So he's already got a host of 100 million, but there's standing room only for the people who are redeemed. It doesn't make any sense. British Israelism, Herbert Armstrong, he's pretty popular. Say the 144,000 are Englishmen. Well, I suppose if you look at the scripture and it says from the tribe of Heathcliff and the tribe of Winchester, and I suppose that would, that would make sense. But here we're speaking about specific tribes of Israel that we know from the Old Testament exist. God is very detailed. And a lot of this replacement theology where Americans or the British or Jehovah Witnesses are usurping the, 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 the promises and the blessings to Israel is really rooted in replacement theology where Israel gets all the curses of God, but she gets none of the blessings, and it's not scriptural. So these are tribes that are clearly named and have nothing to do with the largely Gentile church uh, of the aforementioned that I spoke of. There's no vagueness at all. The tribes are purposely named, and furthermore, two of them are purposely left out, if you've noticed, if you know your Old Testament history. Dan and Ephraim are both left out. Now, there's some speculation, but Dan and Ephraim, both of them were heavily rooted in idolatry and rebelliousness against God. Could be a reason, I'm not really sure. As a matter of fact, if you followed us in our book of Judges study, Ephraim was a problem to everybody. He gave Gideon a problem, <laughs> and he gave uh, Jephthah a problem. And as we go through, we might find out that the Ephraimites gave other people a uh, problem. So if God is that detailed in the scripture, we have to be very careful of symbolizing the portions of scripture where God is giving us great details. Now, there's going to be portions of Scripture where the, the Apostle John says, I saw something like 
Okay, so we have to try to figure out what he's seeing because he's kind of describing it, but he's really not sure. It could be something in our uh, futuristic, uh, technological savvy generation that he just hasn't seen before. And he's trying to describe it, and then we'll go into that. But when he is very specific and explicit, we shouldn't try to spiritualize it. Verse 1, it says the four corners. Now that's an expression. We talk about the four compass points or the eight compass points between the, you know, on your little compass. It's just an expression. If you want to find science in the Bible, there's plenty of places to find it. 3,000 years ago, before the advent of modern technology and telescopes, Isaiah 40:22 says that the earth was round. So why were those in the Middle Ages saying the earth was flat and some from the church? Because they weren't reading their Bibles. The Bible said the earth is round. Isaiah 42 tells you right there. So these four winds or remaining judgments are temporarily suspended here. And in verse 2, we see God's seal of protection. Now, this is a different seal, because you heard me talking about the last few Sundays, the scroll with the seals, and the Lord breaks the seals, and all these judgments happen, and now we're putting that seal on these people's heads? What's going on here? It's a different seal. Okay? What you have here is um, a, a seal that God uses to protect these people, and later we'll see that Satan will use a counterfeit seal uh, that marks damnation in the mark of the beast. Now, it's funny, because even secular folks watch TV, they've heard of the Antichrist, they've heard of the mark of the beast, even people who aren't Christians speculate on what the mark of the beast is. But did you know that Satan, again, stole it from God? Those who aren't very familiar with the scripture don't know the 144,000 that were sealed. Satan just takes everything that God does and he gives a cheap imitation or a counterfeit to it. So his mark of the beast is different, but there's a precedent in God's mark uh, of sealing. Now the question is, what exactly is this seal? Is it salvation? Is it protection? Is it God's ownership over these people? Is it the fact that he wants them to serve him? Is it giving them the Holy Spirit? Well, I would say all of the above. And there's precedent in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 9, there was this really cool scripture where the, the, God's people were so debauched, they were so far gone, they were so into idolatry, that he had to execute judgment on them. And he had these six men, which they probably were angels, and they all lined up with their battle axes. And he was going to go and and slay these, these wicked, rebellious, idolatrous people. And he said, wait a minute. He said, find me everyone in Jerusalem who's wailing over the situation of idolatry. God's people who are looking at the rest of the people and saying, this is awful. We're supposed to be God's people. This is such a decadent society. And God says, find those people, give them my seal that they cannot be harmed, and then he sent the six out with the battle axes to execute judgment. So there's, there's a precedent there. It's a pretty neat portion of scripture. But the 144,000 seem to be Jewish evangelists. Why? Well, Matthew 24:14 says that the gospel has to preach, be preached to the whole world, to the ends of the world, and, and then the end will come, scripture tells us, Matthew 24:14. And the church's rapture, But God's chosen people, the Jews, and Israel take center stage again, fulfilling remaining prophecy. And the question is, what happens after God seals? He commissions them. This is none other than the Great Commission, to go to the ends of the the earth and preach the gospel. See, God doesn't seal anyone to have them, okay, now you're sealed. Now go sit down on the couch, let me get you the remote, flip some of the channels, and just stay there and relax. God doesn't seal people for us to do nothing. He desires a little rate of return on his investment, and he deserves it. You go put your money in a CD, you expect something in return, don't you? You go put your money in the stock market, you hope to get something back, right? In Isaiah 5 and Matthew 21 in the New Testament, 
we, we see this rate of return. We see a story about God who, speaking of his people, said, you know, I dug out a, a, a trench, I watered you, I planted you, um, and he likens his people to a vineyard. And I protected you, I built a tower, I built a wall, I gave you good nourishment, I gave you time, and I expected some fruit. And all I got was wild grapes. And you know what the Lord does? He just takes it and he, and he, he raises it. He takes it down. Because the people went astray, they were into idolatry, and they bore no fruit. It's very important to understand. And really, service or fruit. We can't really truly be matured in Christ if we go 5, 10, 20, or more years as a Christian and never serve. Inside the church, outside the church. John 15 illustrated the necessity of bearing fruit. And Jesus modeled service in washing the apostles' feet in John 13. And it wasn't because Jesus had a foot fetish. It wasn't because he particularly was thrilled about taking their sandals off and washing their dirty feet. But he did it to teach us how to serve others. It would be a crime to go to be with the Lord and have never served anyone but ourselves. Some have the attitude that all my time is precious to me and I'm going to hoard it for my own pleasures. Some may think I don't have any talents. Okay. But that's not true. Realizing that, you know, it's really amazing when you do what the scripture has called you to do, when we do it, as we go and we serve God and we look for a need, we realize our talents, right? If you go to help someone who's disabled, you may find that you, you talk to them and you make them feel better. You may have the gift of encouragement. You may help somebody who's in need and, and be able to recall scriptures and, and, and give them the promises of God you may find that you have a great recall for scripture. You might even be a teacher one day. So as you're serving somebody, you're serving others, you find your talents all of a sudden now come and bubble to the surface, right? There was a, um, I just found out uh, recently that the South Brunswick Food Bank, this is our community, is suffering. Now I have to confirm this. I'm going to call tomorrow and find out. But as a church, at the very least, we'll make a donation and possibly maybe we could do a food drive. You know, there's, I can think of at least three nursing homes in this area of people who really need us, who could use our help. We're looking for something to do. The church could use your help. You know, we're always looking for somebody to serve. So what we find is that there's always somebody, and Jesus even said, the poor you will always have with you. They're always going to have, they're always going to be people in need. And the question is, Christian, will we rise to the occasion to pray about not just serving ourselves, but serving other people too? And what really I'm blessed about this church is that we have um, a better than 50% service rate. More than one out of two people in this church are doing something. And you know what? If every Christian on the face of the planet did something and served the Lord in some small way, this world would be a much better place, wouldn't it? I'm not trying to have a touchy-feely message, but, tr- but truly, if every Christian on the planet would do their small part in serving the Lord, we could dramatically change the face of this earth, and certainly those watching us would say, and, and, and it would certainly be a witness to them about who Jesus Christ is. So service. These guys are serving. I believe it. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great number which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. So first we have the Jews and here is the Gentiles. We, we, 
it's like if you were on a, a movie set. You have the, the 144,000, and then the camera pans to this great multitude of really Gentiles, different tribes, languages, cultures. These are Gentiles. They're not nationalistic, um, purified in one particular line. Right? So they're definitely Gentiles. Uh, it's possibly that these are the tribulation uh, Gentiles that are saved throughout the tribulation, and it's possibly possible that these Gentiles were saved because of the 144,000 Jewish evangelism. Here's the irony. If you go all the way back 2,000 years ago, the early church was mostly Jews, and they had to preach to the Gentiles for the Gentiles to get saved, right? And then you had, over time, you had the church, the face of the church changed. It became mostly Gentiles, and even now, we preach to the Jews. Hey, this is your Messiah. This is what the Old Testament say. We try to encourage Jewish people to, to look into their scripture and have a hunger for it. Now, here's a time where it reverts back to Jews preaching the Gentiles. So I like to watch. I don't know. I'm kind of organized that way in my mind. I just like to see the different stages. I like to see things come alive. I like to see how God does things. And he does everything for a reason. And it, the Bible says that no man could number them. Possibly... Speculation is that millions were saved, are going to be saved towards, uh, during the tribulation period. And the remainder of chapter 7 is probably a blown-up version of the fifth seal. Remember back in the fifth seal when that was opened and the, the souls under the altar were crying out because they were being martyred? It's quite possibly that this is the kind of fulfillment of that fifth seal. Okay, verse 9 and 10, everyone gets white robes here and palm branches, which are symbolic of the following. Number 1. The palm branches, the Feast of Tabernacles. What was the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament? It was a period of time where there was wilderness wandering. Even the Jews today celebrate that Feast of Tabernacles. I think, was it, is it Sukkot? Okay, got it right. <laughs> I got my, my Jewish believer here who's helped me out, one of them. Um, so the wilderness wandering, the Jews wandered around without a permanent home, and uh, this is what they celebrated but now they have a permanent home, and that permanent home is in heaven. So they're waving the palm branches, and this is really a fulfillment of that, or one of the fulfillments. Two, the palm branches. It's joy and elation of being with the Messiah. We saw this in the triumphal entry 2,000 years ago, if you remember. Because they also cried out saying salvation. Remember? Hosanna, Hosanna. Translated, it means uh, save now, salvation. We beseech you. Here's another fulfillment of that. When Jesus came riding in on the donkey, they waved the branches, they put them down on the ground, he, he rode over them, and they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, salvation, save now. Verse 11, or verse 12, they were saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know, I like that. He, he has no idea. <laughs> he says to the, the messenger of the angel, I have no idea. You know, sir, I'm sure you have the answer. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So who are these people? John replies, I'm not sure, but I know you know. Now, I think he would have known them if they were Jews, if they were Old Testament saints or they were first century saints. So here's another proof of the Gentile tribulation saints. Uh, verse 15, last few verses. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. 
For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to fountains, living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So, verse 16, there'll be no more hunger and no more thirst. Now, I speculated, although it's really based on a good foundation, with the mark of the beast, when that comes, no one will be able to buy or sell. Can't buy food. Go to the supermarket. Here's my cash. Where's your mark? I don't have a mark. Put the stuff back and come back when you have a mark. Mark of the beast. It will be legislated. The whole world will have to have this mark or they can't buy anything. No transportation, no, nothing. No fuel, nothing without this mark of the beast. So it's quite possible that many will die from hunger or thirst because they refuse to bow down to the Antichrist and they don't get that mark. In oppressive countries today, we even see that happening to Christians. As a church, we, um, we support Voice of the Martyrs. And they actually go all around the globe looking for Christians who have been persecuted, uh, the Sudan, the Khartoum government, the Muslim-dominated government. You become a Christian, they don't even let you drink from their well. You're banned from the community well. So Voice of the Martyr goes out and they send farm implements, shovels, etc. They send uh, well-making equipment. They, they send it, they don't sell it, excuse me. They send blankets because in, in, at nighttime it's cold, believe it or not, and, they, and they're freezing. So they send them blankets, and that's who we support. But we're going to see a time where this is going to be wholesale. No mark of the beast. Even those in, I guess, we, what we, we consider less developed countries, again, it's the persecution is going to be so great that they won't be able to use the wells, they won't be able to have food, and they'll be completely persecuted. And we see a little taste of it now. And two, the sun and the heat won't strike them. Well, that's curious. As we go through these judgments, we're going to see that one of the angels pours a vial onto the sun and the sun does these really, and we're going to talk about the scientific nature of that if that's a possibility of what's going to happen, but it changes the way the sun functions and the heat is going to be terribly scorching upon mankind. I think that a human being can take up to maybe 130, a little bit more, 140 degrees Fahrenheit, but this is going to change the composition of the way the sun functions and the heat is going to be so intense that it's going to be, you won't be able to stand outside scorching heat waves across the earth. And we'll see that. And in verse 17, it says that they will be led to fountains of living water. Jesus spoke about that in John chapter 7, and that was indicative of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, so that's, that's what that means. And also having the tears wiped away. The Bible tells us uh, at the end of Revelation that there will be no more crying, no more sorrow, no more tears for the former things of, of uh, have been are wiped away. No more death. No more persecution. These people won't have to suffer anymore. It's almost as if you're you're just out in the hot sun all day and it's just brutal and you're thirsty and you come into an air conditioned place and someone gives you a drink of water. Well, spiritually, they're going to go from a period of intense persecution, probably being martyred, and then step into the throne room of God, where it's like wow, night and day. Not only it's it's not I'm not being persecuted, but I'm in the presence of God. So this is going to be pretty amazing. So in the midst of misery, we see that God is still saving souls. And that's a great message here. It shows the long-suffering and mercy of God. Even in the midst, as we go through the book of Revelation, and, and sometimes we have trouble with some of these judgments, you know, I don't understand the loving God, the whole deal. We're going to get into that. But um, even in the midst of this, this trying time, God is still going to allow those who want to come to him, who want to repent of their sins and receive the gift of Jesus Christ, and receive the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross, he's still going to allow that to happen. So, you know, if the whole world all of a sudden turned to God and said, you know what, we've sinned. 
please forgive us and take us in. No doubt in my mind, he'd say, plenty of room up here. Come on in, right? So he's a a faithful, he's a long-suffering, and he's a merciful God. We see the remnant. It's all throughout the scripture. No matter how bad the society was, there was always a small remnant of people that were faithful to God. We saw it in Sodom and Gomorrah. We saw it in 1 Kings 19 with uh, Israel and Elijah. We saw it with, uh, in Isaiah 6. He speaks about the remnant, even though things are so bad. Everywhere you go, uh, the, the, and the societies are really starting to be decadent and crumble, there's always a remnant left that are faithful to God. And the encouragement here is, look, if these people can serve God and trust him and refuse to deny him in such trying and sinful times, then that's an encouragement to us. Because we live in an age that's relatively, or we live in a country, and that might change soon, that's relatively, we have religious freedom, we have relative ease. So if they could do it, why can't we serve God and trust him and refuse to deny him and be salt and light in our society? Yes, we certainly can. The bottom line is our world is becoming increasingly decadent. In a sense, true Bible-believing Christians are becoming the minority or the remnant. And there may be a time just before the rapture where we as Christians become that remnant. You know, the, the, the number of God's people who are faithful may shrink. Okay? And then after the, um, the tribulation or after the rapture, all of a sudden we see an, uh, maybe a revival in a sense where many start to come to him. But the aforementioned events are listed as future events and everyone must make the choice. Do I want to be in the majority or do I want to be in the remnant? If you've made your peace with God by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, be of good cheer. All these events are all just historical events. They don't affect us. Remember I talked about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You could either see those horses from the front snorting and coming after you with them clup, clup, clup with the hooves, or you can be just looking up from where God is and seeing the backs of them going down onto the earth and say, hey, that doesn't affect me. And that depends on where you are with Jesus Christ. Same thing with these, you can watch the fireballs come down, you can watch the earthquakes, you can, you can run for your life in fear, or you can look up and be in the presence of God and pretty much he can show, give you a monitor and, and see it on the earth and say, thank God I've escaped that. And that all comes down to one thing. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And it's something to consider. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as usual. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, um, even when I didn't know Revelation that well, I just thought it was all doom and gloom. But we see all these pauses, we see...